Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the Emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Well, good morning, church. If I haven't met you before, my name is Ben, and it's my pleasure to open up uh, this passage for us this morning. And I want to start by telling you about a story of, a, of an Australian uni student called Josh. Uh, Josh goes to university in Australia, and I heard his story this week. He recalled a story about how his university opposed him for his faith in Jesus. Now, you might wonder what Josh did to spark this. You might wonder what kind of created that kind of reaction from his university. And the simple answer is that he prayed. You see, he had become friends with one of the other students and uh, over the past couple of years, and uh, this girl was telling him how stressed she was feeling at work. And so he offered to pray for her, and she said yes. So he prayed for her, and afterwards she said, you know, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in prayer, but I really appreciate your care. It sounds all right. But unfortunately, what happened was uh, some of the other university students um, reported him for misconduct to the university. And the university took it very seriously. They told him that he was to attend counselling sessions to learn how to interact with his peers, and that if he were to come onto campus before doing that, he would be escorted out by security. 
Josh was not a, a radical. He didn't impose his faith on other people. He simply offered to pray for a friend in public, and he was mistreated for it. Now, I wonder if you can remember a time when you were mistreated for your faith. I wonder if you can relate at all. Most, if not all of us, have at least felt the pressure to hide our Christianity. Many of us feel that the culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. In fact, one of my friends was just speaking to me this week, and he brought this up himself. He told me that he's really troubled about where things are going in Australia, and he asked me, is there, is there ever a point where we just say enough? Is, it, is there ever a point where we need to just stop, stop giving so much grace and, and, and do something about it? He feels the tides of culture are changing, and he is wondering what to do about it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm sure that there are many others who feel that way today as well. Now, if you don't know already, we're working through the first letter of Peter in a series called Against the Tide. And in his letter, Peter speaks directly to our questions about how to respond to a culture that is swimming in a different direction to us. He speaks to Christians about how to live as those who are swimming against the tide. And the last few weeks, we've looked at our identity as God's people, the church. And now this week, Peter takes one more breath to speak about our identity before he dives into practical instructions for how we are to respond as Christians against the tide. If you've ever felt the pressure to hide your Christianity, if you're worried about where Australia is going, if you've ever been mistreated for your faith, then 1 Peter chapter 2 is going to speak directly to you. Now before we get into it, I do want to note the fact that the situation of Peter's original audience was far more intimidating than ours. He was speaking to a powerless minority group in a pagan empire not a fairly sizable proportion of Christians in an Australian democracy. So there's a big difference there. But I think the fact that their situation was more hostile makes Peter's commands in these verses all the more striking. So I want to encourage you to listen in this morning and hear what Peter has to say. And if you're not a Christian here today, I want to make sure that you know that you are welcome here. It's good to have you here. We want you to be here with us. And I want to encourage you to lean in as well. The advice that Peter gives here is actually quite unexpected and shocking. You know, maybe you've had a bad interaction with Christians before. Maybe you think we complain too much and we just don't know how good we've actually got it. I don't know where you're at. But I want to encourage you to listen in and hear what Christianity is all about with fresh ears. And I hope that this morning you will see its shocking beauty. So let's get into it. In this section of the letter, Peter points out four things that will help us live for Jesus in a changing culture. And the first thing he points out is that we have a new identity, a new identity. In verse 11, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. This doesn't mean that the churches were only literally made up of immigrants. There were probably Roman citizens among his audience, but that didn't matter. Because either way, they had been given a greater identity in Jesus. Their fundamental identity had shifted from being in this present world to being in Christ. They didn't belong to Rome or Israel or wherever else they may have been brought up. Their true home was in the world 
to come. And hence they were strangers and foreigners in this current age. And in the same way, Peter would say to us today, you are foreigners and exiles. You may be a citizen of Australia, but Australia is not your true home. You may have been brought up in Brisbane or Sydney, in South Africa or England or New Zealand, but you don't ultimately belong there. You belong to God. You have a new identity and a new culture that comes along with it. And just like Israel journeyed through the wilderness as strangers and foreigners as they were headed towards the the land that God promised them, so too Christians today are strangers and foreigners on a journey to the new creation, the hope that Jesus has promised us through faith in him. This new identity changes everything. It changes our goals, it changes our priorities, our purpose. And this is why Peter starts here, because when we realize who we are, we begin to gain clarity about how to respond to mistreatment in this world. So how does our identity actually change our response? How does the fact that we are foreigners and exiles change things for us? Well, first of all, it reveals that we have a greater purpose. That's the second point, a greater purpose. And this is reflected in Peter's command in verse 11. He said, Dear friends, dear beloved, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So we're going to talk about the greater purpose driving this command here. But first, isn't it interesting that this is where Peter starts? You know, wouldn't you expect Peter to say something to churches, a little different to churches who were struggling under the Roman Empire, who were feeling persecuted. Maybe he, we would have urged, if it was asked, maybe we would have urged them to do something to gain the political authorities' favor. Maybe we would have told them to, to get out and leave before it's too late. But isn't it striking, before Peter gives them any instructions about what to do out there, he calls them to do something about what's going on in here. You see, this is not about a culture war for Peter. This is about a glory war. All of his practical instructions to these minority churches is driven by his grand desire to bring glory to God alone. These churches may have felt like their human persecutors were the enemy, but Peter turns around and says, no, the real war is going on inside of you. There's still sinful, selfish, corrupting desires waging war against your soul. Do not submit to them even for a moment. Resist, fight back. God's glory is at stake. Our greater purpose is the glory of God. And that's a very different purpose to the culture around us. So we would expect it to change how we live and respond in radical ways. Think about the main purpose for Australians living around this area. I think it's fair to say that most people find their main purpose in things like family, prosperity, comfort, success. But notice how very individualistic that is. Notice how very small that worldview is. If you live in a little story like that where your greatest good is yourself, and you're the one who is in charge of your own destiny, then you will go to war with anything that opposes it. 
So if your day-to-day reality, and I'm speaking to everyone now, is actually that smaller Australian story, if your day-to-day reality is basically centered on bettering your family, increasing your wealth, gaining success, and securing comfort, then those things evidently are very strong values for you. And your purpose shifts as that happens. It becomes more about protecting and securing those things. Who you think you are shapes what you pursue. Your identity shapes your purpose. And if you really want to know what your identity and purpose are, you just need to observe where most of your energy and passion and money are spent. Your identity shapes your purpose. But as Christians, we've been given a new identity and a greater purpose. When we think first and foremost as God's people whose purpose is God's glory, it changes our lives dramatically. And it changes our response to mistreatment dramatically. The purpose of God's glory is so grand and important that it overshadows other good things, even things like comfort or security. God's glory is so grand and important that it draws us out of the tide of individualism and compels us to live a life for others. This is actually how Peter tells us to pursue God's glory. A God-centered life is an other-centered life because God is glorified when we do everything we possibly can to commend him to others. This is why Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter's vision was consumed with the glory of God. And that is because our great goal as the church is to glorify God. And we pursue that means by that goal by any means possible, even if that means is suffering and ridicule. Peter basically says here, here's how to respond to mistreatment. Just respond by living even better and more beautiful lives. Perhaps they will be so moved by the beauty in your life that they will turn to God and glorify him. That's pretty radical. That's pretty challenging. Our new identity and purpose have remarkable implications for how we live. They change everything. And they are the driving force behind the surprising strategy that Peter gives us. And that's our third point, a surprising strategy. And this strategy can be summed up with one word. I'll give you a hint. It starts with S and we don't like it. You ready for it? It's submission. Submission. Peter instructs the churches to submit to others. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Remember that purpose? For the glory of God. To every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So hang on a minute, Peter. You're you're telling these Christians that they should submit themselves to Rome, to an empire devoted to pagan worship, to a government which gave no protections to Christians whatsoever. Yes, that's what Peter's saying. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake 
to every human authority, that by any means you may bring glory to God. Peter is teaching us how to live peaceful and a submissive life so that others might see the beauty in how we live, so that others might see that we're strangers in this world and that we really do have a better future that cannot be taken away. And Peter's hope is that through our life, others might gain a greater sense of God's beauty and reality, that they might repent and turn to him to give him even more glory and honor. Our identity as foreigners and exiles means that our hope is not in this world. It means that the glory of God is our grand purpose and desire. And it means we have a surprising strategy for dealing with hostility. It's called submission. So if you feel misinterpreted and falsely represented in Australian society, you need to know that it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. God's strategy for us in the tide of a changing culture is to live in stunning submission. First and foremost, I want to make this clear. People are to be stunned by the way we submit to God, first and foremost. People are to be stunned by the way that we submit to God because we fear Him alone. We revere and worship Him alone. They're to be stunned by the lengths that we go to to give Him glory. In fact, some historians believe that it was the love and good deeds of the early church that empowered the church's witness in the Roman Empire. This guy called John Dixon, he's a good historian, and uh, he says, as the church got on with the serious business of charity, one emperor panicked. Emperor Julian was a devout student of Greek philosophy and religion. Julian left us a collection of almost humorous letters complaining that the Christians cared for everyone. He was worried that they were going to take over the Roman world by the stealth of their good deeds. In one letter he wrote, The Galileans have devoted themselves to philanthropy. They have their so-called love feasts or hospitality or service of tables. They call it by many names because they have many ways of carrying it out. And the result is that they have led a very many others into their atheism. He calls Christianity atheism because it denies the Greek and Roman gods. An other-centered life is powerful evidence that the message we preach about Jesus is not only good news, it's true news. And next, Peter says to the church, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. See, it's not that we're enslaved to the authorities. We're actually under God. We have incredible freedom through Jesus. And Peter is telling us not to use our freedom for our own selfish pursuits, but to use our freedom for God's glory, to submit to the government for God's glory. And he says that we should do this because we are God's slaves. Now, you may have never thought of yourself as a slave before, but all of us are slaves to something. Peter tells Christians here that they are slaves to God. That is why they are called to live for righteousness. If you are a Christian, you are a slave to God. God is your new master. Now, maybe we bought into Australian individualism so much that we don't like that thought, but that's what the Bible says. And in fact, it's really good news. Because if we're slaves to anything else, it leads to heartbreak and death. 
But when you are a slave to God, it actually just leads to righteousness. It actually just leads to beautiful living and a conscience filled with peace. Paul says in Romans, he says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which covers a multitude of things, whether that's sex or status or money or power, whatever we live for in rejection of God. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you Christians used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. If you are a Christian, that is, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, then you have become a slave to Lord Jesus. And this is actually extremely good news. Because every other slavery leads to death. But Jesus is the truly good master who is out for our good and wants to lead us into righteousness and peace and life. He wants us to become so much like himself that he calls upon us to lay down our rights and privileges to serve our government and our country, just like he laid down his far greater privileges to suffer and die on a cross on our behalf. Now, some of you may be wondering, but hang on a second here. How far do we submit to the government in everything and all circumstances? Does this mean we can't influence the government or serve within it? I want to say no to those things. And the reason, is it's import- the reason I say that is because it's important for us to understand why we submit to the government. Because it helps us to answer questions like that. It helps us to understand how far our submission goes. So while it is our general rule to honor and obey the government, we submit to the government ultimately for the sake of God's glory and honor. So there may be times in the future where we have to navigate tricky situations. Perhaps laws may be passed that we don't agree with. But the way in which we respond should be formulated by certain priorities. Our ultimate priority being God's glory. And then flowing out of that different things like being a compelling witness to the good news of Jesus. I also want us to keep in mind that the original audience that Peter was talking to was not living in democracy. They didn't have ScoMo as prime minister. They didn't have any religious protections. In fact, they were probably living during Emperor Nero's reign. And while he never introduced systematic persecution of Christians, he was, he's well remembered for burning Christians alive to use them as lights at night. That's the kind of context in which Peter says, submit to the governing authorities. He wants the world to know, here's here's part of the reason, he wants the world to know that Christians are a good thing. They're not seditious and lawless, they're ambassadors of a very good God. And the way they live is their reference letter to the world. You know, think about reference letters. People give their employers' reference letters to authenticate their claims. It gives more weight to what they are saying in their CV and their job application. You know, if I saw a job opening up at a store nearby and I walked in and I just made all these bold claims, yeah, I've got an MBA at Harvard and, you know, I used to manage uh, a Fortune 500 company. You may have heard of them, Amazon. And uh, they're probably going to ask me, you know, where's your evidence? Where's your proof of this? Give a reference letter from Amazon saying what you're saying. 
A reference letter validates the claims you are making. It commends you to the employer and it confirms that you are giving true information. And Peter is trying to teach us that the way we live and respond and react validates our message about Jesus. So he instructs us, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. In other words, live such good lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Next, Peter turns to speak to household slaves. He says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now this section may be hard for us to swallow because we live in a society that universally condemns slavery. We may miss the message that Peter is saying because we are so shocked by the existence of slavery in that time. But let me explain to you a little bit about Roman slavery in the first century. Because I think most of us watch American television, American movies, and we usually have a picture of African-American slavery. Roman slavery was different. So, for example, it wasn't focused on enslaving a particular ethnic group or culture. Slaves, you could become a slave if you lost in war to Rome and they took you as prisoner. People also sold themselves into slavery. When they hit financial hardship, they would sometimes sell themselves into slavery to get through that. Slaves were often well-educated, sometimes better educated than their masters, and they would perform multiple occupations, sometimes doctors, artisans, teachers, all sorts of different things. Slavery was different in that time, and on rare occasions, slaves could buy back their freedom. Having said all of this, though, Slavery was most certainly not a good thing. You were still someone else's property, and many slaves still experienced horrible abuse at the hands of their masters. So I don't want to make out like it was okay, it wasn't. But what Peter is doing here is not approving of the Roman form of slavery. Rather, he is speaking into the social reality of that day. And again, his conviction that every single Christian has a new identity and a greater purpose drives his instructions for household slaves. Those slaves were free in Christ. Their new purpose was so radical that they were called upon to use their Christian freedom to win over even their masters for the faith. That's very radical and challenging. But it simply highlights the lengths Peter calls us to go in order to commend God to others. There's no question in the Bible that, the, that slavery is an evil thing. But God was asking slaves to endure this social evil for the good of the perpetrators. He was asking them to seek their master's good, whether they were kind or cruel, that by any means possible, God might be glorified in their life. And you know what? This applies to all of us. Every believer is a slave of God. And God calls upon us to endure mistreatment graciously for the good of others. God says to you and me, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who don't deserve it. Show honor to those who dishonor you. Love your enemies. 
I don't know about you, but I find this extremely challenging. This is extremely challenging. And we need serious help to follow these kinds of instructions. We need nothing less than the help of God. And the good news is that he has left us with a beautiful and stunning example to follow. That's our fourth point, a stunning example. You see, Jesus is our example. Jesus didn't just sit and watch from some distant throne in heaven. He himself left his throne and gave up his privileges for us. We need to remember what God has done for us. Because the truth is, we weren't just unfavorably disposed towards God. We were enemies of God. We mistreated him, we offended him, we lived like he didn't exist, and we still do oftentimes today. And he does not wipe evil under the rug, he is just, he deals with it. But instead of having us undergo the punishment we deserved, he took it all upon himself. He endured unjust suffering and pain for our good. He submitted to cruelty and death for the good of others, for the good of us. And this is why we are called to suffer graciously and submissively. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus did something so radical for us. He has set us free. He's given us a new identity. He's given us a new purpose. He has secured our future. And he calls us to radically respond. We respond by following his example. If the media slanders us, we do not retaliate. If someone insults our beliefs, we make no threats in return. We do good to them. We bless them. God has called us to follow Jesus' example, that by any means, others might come to him. I'd love to finish this morning by sharing with you a story of radical submission in Iran. The man on the screen has been named Samson to hide his identity, and he's a persecuted Christian in Iran. And one Sunday night at 2 a.m., Islamic extremists came to kill him. Eight people with machine guns and knives said, come with us. Samson could not see their faces as they were wearing balaclavas. So Samson went with them and they took him to a garbage dump. They said, today is the last day for you. Jesus is not a God. He will not save you. The leader came and grabbed his hair and pulled his head back, placing a knife on his throat and asked Samson, what do you want to say? Samson replied, Jesus loves you and I forgive you. They asked him, do you accept Islam? And he said, no, I've found the truth. The creator of earth, heaven, and all mankind. People created religion, but God, you created holy work. Please reveal your work to my brothers here. Salvation, 
protection for their children and let them know that my blood is not on their hands. Please bless their families and I forgive them. Amen. The Islamist extremists screamed at him, Are you a fool? We want to kill you and you are blessing our families? Go home. We will come again and take you. Two weeks later, 30 extremists and two of their leaders came back. They said, We want to talk. We are those who wanted to kill you. But we are not going to kill you. The two leaders standing at the front said the 30 men behind them were their army. As the leaders, we are the ones who kill our victims, they said. They proceeded to tell Samson how 24 leaders of the army would retreat to the hills during the day and come at night into the town. Recently, 24 leaders came down from the mountains at night and walked into an ambush set up by the government. The two leaders at the front of the group told how they laid on the ground with bullets flying over from all four sides. They couldn't raise their heads or they would get shot. And one of the leaders said, While we were lying there, we saw you, and you came to us and said, Throw yourself into the water and you will survive. And the two of us jumped into the water and we survived. The 22 other leaders were killed. They asked Samson, How did you manage to come to us and why weren't you shot? Samson replied, I was not there, but my God sent an angel who looked like me because I am his servant. He did it for you to come to me to tell you Jesus loves you, died for you, and can give you salvation. The man said to Samson, I will never fight again. They threw open their arms and said to the soldiers, This Christian speaks truth. I will accept Jesus. A story comes from an organization called Open Doors, and it's one of the most crazy stories I've ever heard about a persecuted Christian in the world. But God wants to use us in this world to tell others about Jesus. And Jesus has left us with a stunning example of love in the face of evil. So let's ask him for grace to follow his lead. Let me pray. Lord, this is challenging. Jesus, the life you lived was radically different. None of us expected you to do what you did. Hardly anyone realized that you were the Messiah, the Son of God. And Lord, we want to thank you, first and foremost, for what you did for us. You saw us before we knew you, before we were born. You saw us when we were in rebellion, when we lived lives for ourselves and not for you. And instead of judging us, you came and saved us through the cross. Lord, help us first and foremost to receive that mercy afresh again this morning. We receive that mercy, Jesus. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for what you did. Lord, we want to lay down our lives in response and worship you. And Lord, we've heard what Peter said in his letter this morning, and it's challenging, Lord, calling us to do good to those who persecute us, to bless and pray for those who do evil to us. Lord, if and when that comes, help us to respond like you, Jesus. Fill us with your spirit. Fill us with your power. Fill us with your love for others, even for our enemies. Lord, we know that your glory is at stake and we want to see you glorified. We want people to know you. We want people to see that you are real. 
We want people to come under your rule and reign. We want people to join us in the new creation that we look ahead to. So Jesus, we ask for your grace as your people. And we ask this in your name and authority. Amen.